Hey, it's good to see everybody. I'm glad you, you made it back to church today. Um, we have the privilege tonight to go back into God's Word together and uh, be able to mine out whatever joy we can find here. Um, so glad you're here. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to be looking at the book of Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. So I'll give you some time to, to get there if you want to follow along. It's Galatians 5, 1 to 15. All right, so the other day I was reading an article on slavery in America. And in this article, it started to explain that in the United States, slavery actually existed all the way up into the 1960s. Now, if you think about that, because slavery formally ended in the United States in 1865 when the North won the Civil War. But for some very unfortunate people, slavery would continue on for another 98 years. Now, the way these plantation owners would accomplish this illegal underground slave ring uh, was by creating this ridiculous debt on the side of these freed slaves and then forcing them to work the land for for decades and decades and decades. Um, They would never pay off this debt. And they were treated the same way they were treated as slaves. They'd be beaten, uh, they were raped, and, and they were just treated like property. Now, the writer of the article had the opportunity to to meet with an individual who grew up in an environment like this as a slave. Uh, They were were born into that that place, and his name was Cain. Now, Cain was 107 years old at the time of this interview. He he was pretty old, um, but he was born into that environment. Now, he didn't receive his legitimate freedom until 1963, I mean, that's, that's only a few decades ago. Now, when the interview took place in 2014, Cain had been free for about 51 years. Okay, so during this interview, Cain was watching TV. And as he was watching TV, a man came on the screen that reminded Cain of someone who worked on the farm when he was a slave, um, one, of the, one of the slave owners. And Cain immediately panicked. Uh, he, he started to become terrified, very anxious, and, and he just became so fearful of, that this person on the TV was going to show up at his home, drag him out of the house, and back to the farm, and back into slavery. You see, the sad situation, of the sad reality of this story is that even though Cain was now truly a free man, he was still living as a slave. And I wonder how many of us still fight that battle today, where we walk around feeling like slaves, even when we know the freedom that Christ offers us. Uh, Maybe we've been a Christian for years, and we feel the constant pressure of having to earn our way to God. Or maybe we're the type of person that feels like we have to maintain our image by good works to try to validate or, or prove that we're actually Christians. And who are we trying to convince? Is it ourselves? Because for some of us, our our walk has become nothing more than just being about performance and measuring up. So so we create these checklists as a way of maintaining our status with God. Just a bunch of boxes that we check off every day to make sure God's not going to be angry with us. And so we live with this idea that our relationship is somehow dependent on on how well we can perform. Did we read our Bibles today? 
Did we pray today? Because, you know, if we didn't do all of these things, God's not going to love us. How does that leave us feeling? Free? No, it, it makes us feel guilty and condemned and, and full of shame. It, it makes us feel tired and heavy. It makes us feel fake, worn down, and oppressed. That's not freedom, that's slavery. So does the Bible offer us any hope for that situation? And I think it does. Right here in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. So let's take a look now and start reading from verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Heavy words from Paul right off the bat. So if you're not really familiar with where we are in the book of Galatians at this point, we're just going to do a quick review to help catch us up um, before we go on. Uh, Now, what's happening here in the book of Galatians is that there were these false uh, Christians or these false brothers that have been coming into the church. They're called Judaizers. And what they've been doing is spreading this false gospel around. And they've been saying that, you know what, you're not saved just by faith alone. Uh, There's a few other things that you need to add alongside of it, like circumcision. There are some works, some things that you need to do, some self-effort. But Paul is pushing back against that. He's writing this letter to challenge these false Christians and saying, you know what, that's not true. And he takes a bold stance on freedom. Now take a look at verse 1 again. This is such a beautiful way to start off this section of Scripture. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now now we see here at the beginning of the verse that Christ has set us free. But why did he set us free? Well, it's right here in the text. For freedom. Christ set us free for freedom. But Paul is saying that freedom is the beginning and the end of the gospel. It is everything. 
He's essentially taking this spotlight and shining it directly on freedom and saying to everyone, gather around and look at this. This is freedom. This is what it's all about. So why would you turn back and go on to slavery? See, the other half of the verse says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back that way. Don't become enslaved again to having to earn your salvation, but stay here in freedom. Paul's looking at these people going back to a lifestyle of fear, guilt, pride, and insecurity. And he cries out, don't go back. How many of us have gone back? And how many of us are even facing in the general direction of going back? And worse still, how, how many of us have never actually left. We don't want to be slaves. We know what it feels like to carry that burden and that uncertainty with us. We want freedom. And so if the gospel offers it, we we want to know more. So here's the question we're going to be asking ourselves tonight. What does gospel freedom mean for you and me? What does gospel freedom mean for you and me? And right here in Galatians 5, Paul's going to give us three explanations of what gospel freedom means for us in the hopes that it might truly liberate our souls. So let's take a closer look at verses 2 to 4 right now to start seeing how how this plays out. Starting at verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now it feels like Paul is throwing out so many heavy words all at once in these three verses. Let me just look at what he says in verse 2. Christ will be of no advantage to you. That just sounds terrible. Because what's the gospel? Well, it's the gospel is that Jesus Christ, he lived the perfect life we could not live, died the death we deserve, and took the wrath of God for our sins, and then on the third day, he, raised, he was raised, risen to life. So now you and I can have hope, forgiveness, and the promise of eternal life. But if Christ is of no advantage to us, then all of that disappears, and we are left hopeless and condemned to hell. Now Paul continues in verse 3. He is obligated to keep the whole law. Because if Christ is of no advantage to us, then we have to live perfect lives in perfect obedience to the law of God. And that's impossible. No one can do that. But then Paul reinstates his initial point in verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Do we get how serious this is? Because if these consequences are true for us, then we are guaranteed an eternity in hell. So what brings about these negative consequences? What are they a result of? What earns these consequences? Look at verses 2 and 3. Circumcision. If you accept circumcision, you are severed from Christ fallen from grace and obligated to keep the whole law of God. But don't panic immediately. 
from those words because we need to explain a little bit more of what that actually means. Because Paul clarifies a little bit more further down. Because this does not mean that everyone and everyone, anyone who's ever been circumcised is going to be severed from Christ. Look at verse 4. You who would be justified by the law. You see, it wasn't just circumcision. It was these people who were bringing circumcision to the table as a way of being made right with God. And they were relying on their own works and saying, this is what justifies me. This is what makes me okay before God. I'm relying on what I'm doing. I'm taking that with me before God. And that is what the issue is. Now, the Galatians may have thought something like, well, what's the big deal? It's just one thing. Just one small little thing that we're adding alongside of faith as a requirement for salvation. But Paul pushes back and forth. He tells them that that one little thing that you've added to be justified destroys any hope you have of salvation. To add ourselves or our good works into the equation is to be severed from Christ, fallen from grace, and then obligated to fulfill the entire law of God perfectly. Any attempt to be made right with God by our own works ruins our acceptance of what Christ has done for us. Let me paint a picture for us a little bit to, to give us a clearer view. Has anyone had a barbecue this summer? I'm sure, I'm assuming most people here have probably been to a barbecue or hosted a barbecue. I know the men had one while I was away. I'm not holding any grudges, but... <laughs> but uh, I love a good barbecue, Right, I, I really enjoy it, and, but there have been a few times in my life where I had shown up to a barbecue wearing a nice, bright, clean, white t-shirt. It's the best idea you could ever have. And so I would show up to this barbecue, and I, you know, everything would be going as it should be, very normal. But then the food shows up, right? and I start to dig in, I start to eat. I'm talking to people around me in mid-conversation. I look down, barbecue sauce right there on my shirt. White t-shirt, completely ruined. This is a nightmare. This is horrible. What am I going to do? And so I'm sitting there. I, you know, I, it always, it's always like this small amount of barbecue sauce, like the tiniest amount you could ever imagine, but it just the effects are massive. And so I'm standing there. I'm, I'm pacing back and forth thinking about my, my ruined shirt. And then I start to do that thing where, you know, you have the bright idea, you take a little water and you do the, the little dab, and then it's worse than it was before, and you think, what, what was the point of that? And then you're walking around, and, and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're thinking, I've got to go home and change. And everybody's trying to convince you, you know what? No, it's not that bad. No one's even going to notice. And you know there are a bunch of liars, because the shirt is ruined. It's, it's, it's done for. But I think this is what Paul is saying here. Our self-effort or our good works in an effort to be justified is like the barbecue stain. And we ruin the free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ when we try to add our own self-effort into the equation for justification. That one tiny spot, one tiny addition of our own works in order to be justified ruins our entire hope of salvation. So that's our first point. Gospel freedom means that self-effort is hopeless for salvation. And that is such good news. Now, before we continue, I think we need to talk about two different kinds of people that this passage might apply to. 
the first person blatantly proclaims that personal works are an absolute requirement in order for a person to be saved. They believe that one must fulfill certain laws in order to be justified or made right before God. That, that person is severed from Christ. They have never truly received the grace of God. They have instead placed their trust in themselves. And because of this, they do not know freedom. They are slaves. They are not saved. Now the second person we're going to talk about is saved. They know the freedom Christ offers them. They know that they can't earn it. And they know that the works of the law are not required for justification, but they still don't feel free. They've trusted completely in what Jesus has done, but their hearts and their minds are out of sync, and they still feel like slaves. Though their minds might know the truth, their hearts tell them that they still need to do more. They need to try harder. So they walk around with their guilt and their shame, and they feel like fakes. They feel heavy and condemned. What hope do they have? And I would say that the remedy for both of these types of people is the same. And in the midst of Paul's heavy words that we just looked at is a hidden treasure. Because Paul tells us that the free gift of Christ for salvation is an all or nothing thing. You cannot have a little bit of both. Where you trust partially in him but then partially in yourself. You either trust in Jesus Jesus alone and receive his benefits, or you receive nothing at all. Self-effort for justification destroys any hope of salvation. So then why do we even entertain that idea? There are going to be so many times in our walks with Christ where the devil and our flesh are going to convince us, or try to convince us, that we haven't done enough to earn God's love, or that he's angry with us. Or that we just need to try harder to be made right with God. But that is a lie. Because to fully believe in that lie is to lose all hope of salvation. So run the other way. Away from even the tiniest, insignificant amount of trust in yourself. See, gospel freedom means that our self-effort for justification is hopeless. Not a single work of yours can assist in salvation, and not a single failure of yours can ruin it. So run with everything you have away from that lie and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And what kind of hope does that give us? Let's take a look at verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now when we look at verse 5 and 6 in comparison to the last section we just covered, we see a clear connection. Earlier, Paul was saying that works can do nothing to earn us salvation. In fact, they can ruin our hopes of salvation. But here, Paul tells us that we wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. That's the contrast. Not by works, by faith. And so what is that hope? Well, it's that one day we will be made completely and perfectly righteous before God, and we will spend an eternity with him 
So being finally saved, being finally made right and pure before God, that's what our hope is. And we're not striving for this. We're not doing everything we can to earn it because we're waiting, as the text says. And we're waiting by faith. So look at verse 6. Circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing towards gaining that righteousness. And that's a way of saying that the works of the law and the good deeds and and the self-effort do absolutely nothing to gain our righteousness before God. The only thing that matters is saving faith, true faith, which is evidenced by love. So we wait. Because it's already ours. But we have the hope of righteousness. Now, what's interesting is that the Greek word for hope uh, in verse 5 is, is quite a bit different than what we know in the English language. Um, because it's, it's normal for you and I to say something like, well, I hope it rains today. But we actually have no guarantee that that's going to happen. But the word hope in the Greek is more of a certain hope. It's more of an absolute hope. It's, it's a sure thing. It's going to happen. It's a definite hope. Now, years ago, when I was about 12 years old, and a few weeks leading up to Christmas, I was asking my parents constantly for a new basketball, right? And so two weeks out, I'm going around the tree, and I'm, I'm kind of tiptoeing and looking at everything I can. I didn't unwrap anything. I didn't shake anything, but I was just really strongly observing observing everything I could. And I didn't really make much out because there's just a bunch of boxes wrapped in wrapping paper. But then as I'm walking around, I finally see it. One thing. Big paper bag. And inside of that paper bag is a perfectly wrapped sphere. A ball wrapped in wrapping paper. And I thought to myself, what could it, what could it be? What could it be? What is this thing? And, uh, yeah, my parents didn't really try very hard to, to hide what it was. Um, I think I even bounced it a few times before I put it back under the tree. <laughs> so, but now, the, the weeks after that, leading up to Christmas morning, that hope that I have wasn't just a hope that I thought might come true. No, it was a little bit more. It was a, a guaranteed hope. I knew it was certain. I knew that that ball was going to be mine on Christmas morning. It was a definite hope. It was a guaranteed hope. Now, I think that this is what Paul is trying to say to us here. That by faith alone, in what Jesus Christ has done for us, we have a definite hope. Uh, the kind of hope that right, of righteousness that Paul is speaking about is one that we can be absolutely certain about. That we know by faith, we're sure and certain that that one day is going to be ours. And so that's our second point. Gospel freedom means that salvation is a guaranteed hope by faith alone. Now, do we understand the implications of that truth? That we don't have to weigh, uh, be weighed down by trying to earn our salvation because our righteousness only comes by faith alone in what Jesus Christ has already done. He, he has accomplished it, And if we believe in that, then it is our guaranteed hope. It already belongs to us. It's not an ordinary hope that might come true, but it is a definite hope. It has no chance of failing. It is guaranteed. So how many of us are walking around with that level of certainty? Or do we have a hope that always seems to fall flat? 
Maybe our hope doesn't fill our hearts with certainty, but it instead fills our hearts with doubt and guilt and heaviness and shame. Where we understand in our heads that it's by faith alone, but our hearts are inconsistent. And we carry the burdens of trying harder or trying to earn it or just doing more so that God will accept us. So how does the truth of what Paul is speaking now help those situations? And I just want to give us a couple of ideas of how I think that this truth might help us in that fight. Number one, we fall into sin and our hearts begin to condemn us. And we find ourselves sitting there in a pool of our our own guilt and shame. We think to ourselves, God doesn't want anything to do with me. How can he love this mess? I, I can feel his anger. I am so broken. I'm worthless. I don't know how hard I can keep trying. I'm already so tired. What do I do? But then we remember this truth. The hope of righteousness doesn't come by what we do or what we don't do, but by faith in what Jesus has already done. And because of what he has done, and not because of what we can do, we are adored by God. And the promise of future righteousness is now ours. It's guaranteed. It's a sure and certain hope. So we take that truth and we run to Jesus for forgiveness and we cry out with all of our hearts, show me the way that is greater than my own. Show me that you have sufficiently paid for every imperfection and shortcoming and that you lived the life that I could never live. Settle it in my heart that I can never do it. I can never accomplish it, but make me rest confident that you already have. And then help my heart to see that I have a guaranteed hope because of your righteousness and not my own, because I have no righteousness of my own. Now we pray this over ourselves because it is only the grace of God that will ever settle this in our hearts. Number two, one morning we wake up feeling down, despondent, depressed, and full of despair. There's a cloud hanging over us and we can barely stand. This is not freedom. The days of constantly trying to prove ourselves has finally caught up with us. We feel the weight of always trying to maintain a perfect image of ourselves. We became confident in our ability to be righteous, but have been devastatingly disappointed. And we feel that God must be disappointed too. And so we wonder, what does he think about me now? He must think I'm a failure, that I'm a fake, that I'm not good enough. And and then we start to convince ourselves that we're not truly Christians. But then we remember We remember the truth of what Paul has written. And we turn to the most joyful thing that we can think of. This gospel of freedom. And we begin to preach the truth of this message over ourselves. You are adored by God. 
You were a hopeless sinner, lost in the world, deserving of God's justice in hell, and God loved you. He gave you Jesus and punished him for your sins. Jesus took what you deserved and gave you what you did not deserve. He gave you his perfect life, his righteousness, not because you earned it, not because you did anything to merit it, but because he loves you. And this is now yours by faith alone. Not on the basis of any of your own works, but by faith. God will never love you any more because of your actions. And God will never love you any less because of your actions. You are completely and absolutely and perfectly loved by God because you have placed your faith in Christ. And as we proclaim this truth over ourselves, God's Spirit begins to carry it into our hearts, reminding our souls of the freedom we have in the gospel. See, we need to bring this truth up to the surface as much as we possibly can, whether through praying, reading, or preaching to ourselves. They are the keys to unlocking the chains of our slavery. This is the beautiful truth of the gospel. And I'm willing to guess this is why Paul is so disturbed when people started to leave it behind. Take a look at verses 7 to 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, we don't have enough time to go too in-depth in these verses, but we're just going to do a quick overview of what's going on here. So Paul here is explaining that the Galatians started off well, that they received the gospel by faith, and and then they were also living by faith. But then they were hindered from obeying that truth. Still, Paul expresses his confidence in the Lord that they will not follow this error and they will be and and, and, uh, to be justified by their own works, but they will turn back. He also reaffirms to the Galatians the fact that. He has never changed his mind on this truth of it being by faith alone, which is exactly why he's still being persecuted. Then he closes off with some choice words that he has to say to the false brothers that he wishes they would emasculate or or castrate themselves because they were so obsessed with circumcision. You see, Paul is painting a very clear picture of the seriousness of this topic. Salvation comes by faith alone, apart from any works of the law, and it is crucial. Our efforts and personal obedience do absolutely nothing to earn salvation. In fact, they can ruin any chance of ever having it. And that is such good news. Because that means that the weight and the pressures of trying to earn salvation are no longer on our shoulders. And we are free then the natural question arises. Does this mean that a Christian can do whatever they want? Does this mean that the Christian can sin however they want, live however they please, feed their passions, and still be saved? Let's take a look at verses 13 to 15 to, to find our answer. 
For you were called to freedom. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, take a little closer look at verse 13. You see, this freedom is not to be used as an opportunity for the flesh or our sinful passions. This freedom isn't just a ticket to be able to sin all we want and then satisfy our selfish desires. It's not an excuse to live however we please, no. But verse 13 says, through love we serve one another. Now look at the next verse, verse 14. The whole law of God is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving our neighbors properly ultimately fulfills obedience to God's law. And you might be thinking, wait a second. Why are we bringing God's law back into the picture? I thought we got rid of that. Weren't we just talking about that earlier? Now the answer to that question is really important, so we need to hear this. Now the works of the law are not the means by which we are justified or made right before God, but they are a necessary reflection or evidence of true faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are truly saved, truly born again, and you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, then you will not live a life of freely satisfying your own sin. If you do that, then you're only proving that you've, you've never actually belonged to him. You see, the truth is, when we receive such a loving and precious gift from God, where he would empty himself on the cross and die the death we deserve, our hearts respond in love and gratitude. God changes us, and we now love him. And because we love him, we, we want to please him. We want to live for him. And how do we know what pleases him? His law. We look to his law, which is fulfilled through love. So why do we live obedient lives? It's not to earn our salvation or our place in heaven or to be made right with God. No, we're obedient because we love him. Now, after being married to Donna for a little over two years now, um, I've learned that there are certain things that Donna just does not like. And I've also learned that it's best to avoid those things at all costs. Now, one of the examples that I can bring up is that Donna doesn't like dark furniture, right? <laughs> she does not like dark furniture. And I happen to be okay with dark furniture. In fact, one might say that I actually like dark furniture. When we got married... My, what little furniture I did own was actually dark. It was, it was everywhere. And when she moved in, it was not flying well. Now, the interesting thing is, you might ask, how did we solve that dilemma? We now own a plethora of light furniture. <laughs> you see, I love my wife. And I know that she doesn't like dark furniture. It doesn't please her. And because of that, I don't want dark furniture in my home. Because I know that there are so many other things out there 
that can fit within the boundaries of her preferences and yet still satisfy my needs and at the same time honor my wife. And so I pursue that path instead. I walk the path that pleases her because I love her. But we as Christians love God. And therefore we aim to align ourselves with the path that pleases him. Not to earn anything, but because we see clearly what Jesus has already done for us and our hearts are filled with gratitude and love for him. So we now aim to live lives that please him. We don't use our freedom to sin freely. That's our last point. Gospel freedom means that we do not abuse our freedom. And a life lived that way is going to look messy. Our obedience is not going to be perfect. We're going to fail. We're going to sin. We're going to lose our footing at times, and we will fall. But we get back up. And we will continue to move toward Christ because we love him. Falling and getting back up, falling and getting back up, that is the Christian life. And we pray that God will work in us to make us look more and more like Jesus every day until that glorious day where we finally see him face to face. You see, the true Christian doesn't see the loss of their sin as a calling into slavery, but to freedom. Now, one of the concerns I have when I tell people that our obedience is merely the evidence of true saving faith and not the way that we're justified before God is that we sometimes have this tendency to walk away from that idea and think, okay, well, that just means that I need to try harder. I need to do more. I need to be better so that I can make sure that I'm a Christian. I think to do that would just be another failure because we're all focusing on the, the symptoms and the evidences instead of the source. Faith alone. Faith alone in what Christ has already done. If you are in Christ, then you are painted by his perfect life, clothed by his righteousness, you are covered. All of your sin, your inadequacies, your failures, and your shortcomings are under the blanket of his righteousness. In the eyes of God, you are his perfection. And you are absolutely 100% adored. So now, live your life in response to that. In such a way that pleases him. So what does gospel freedom mean for you and me? Number one, it it means that our self-effort is hopeless. We can't do a single thing to assist in our salvation. So please, let us not put that pressure on ourselves. Number two, it means that salvation is a guaranteed hope by faith alone, and it is ours. And if it is a sure and definite thing, so trust in what Jesus has already done for you, and trust that it is finished and complete. And lastly, number three, gospel freedom means that we do not abuse our freedom, but we respond in love, which fulfills the law of God. So I pray that we would come together and ask God to, to put these truths into our hearts, because all of us want to experience freedom, and that's what it's all about. So would you please pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be able to, to meet and gather around your word, and we're so thankful for your word um, in itself, Lord, that you did not leave us here to wander in darkness, but you have revealed your truth to us, and it is so beautiful and wonderful. And so what we're praying today is that these truths would be buried into our hearts, that we would walk away in light of the hope that you offer in Christ. We would be a people with a sealed certainty by your grace, and it would reflect in the way that we move throughout this life. Lord, we love you, and we're asking you to, to bless us in this way and go with us everywhere we go, shining your grace in our midst. And we're praying it in Jesus' name. Amen.